A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. I kept coming back to how I think I have believed for my lifetime, to put it in really simple terms, that you kind of have to be like unions, thumbs up or thumbs down. You have to think they are amazing or terrible. And the history is so much more complicated than that. This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. everyone. We are so excited to come back today to discuss the modern labor movement after we tackled the five things you need to know about the modern labor movement on Friday. But first, we have a pretty blockbuster news story that we're all thinking about and we're definitely going to discuss in the first segment. And then, as always, we'll close out the show with what's on our mind outside politics. Before we get started, This Saturday, we will be in Louisville, Kentucky, with the one and only Amy McGrath at the Kentucky Center. There was a little confusion on tickets because we had to switch from our ticketing service to the Kentucky Center. So it's on the Kentucky Center's website. We'll put a link in the show notes. I think we have a handful of tickets left, maybe 10 plus. So don't procrastinate if you've been putting it off and thinking, I think I'm going to go or you're waiting for something else to work out. 
Get on the website. Get your tickets for Louisville this Saturday. We still have shows on the Nuance Nation tour coming up in D.C. and Dallas, and tickets left for those, too, as well. So we can't wait to see all of you in person this Saturday in Louisville. And without further ado, we have some news to tackle about Beth's favorite country to deep dive on. The Ukraine. I do love to talk about Ukraine. I know you do. And you can hear lots of that on Patreon if you want to go back into the archives. But what we know now, as I'm sure you have heard, is that Donald Trump has been in conversation with Ukraine's new president, Volodymyr Zelensky, who was a reality show president before he became the actual president. We have an interesting set of circumstances here. And as has been reported by The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, The Washington Post, at least eight times the president in phone conversations with Zelensky has asked for the Ukrainian government to investigate Joe Biden and his interactions with Zelensky's predecessor, over a prosecutor in Ukraine conducting corruption investigations. And the insinuation from Rudy Giuliani and the president is that Joe Biden somehow improperly used his office as vice president to protect his son, who was a director for a Ukrainian company. Now, the prosecutor in Ukraine says there's no evidence of wrongdoing by the Bidens. And pretty much everybody agrees that the president of the United States should not be asking a Ukrainian president to investigate a political rival's child in advance of an election. But wait, there's more. Well, because when this conversation was taking place in July, the Trump administration had put on hold military aid to the Ukraine, which really needs military aid because Russia is always trying to get up in their business. And we know all of this. Because an intelligence employee who gained access to the transcript of this call through legal processes, we believe, became a whistleblower, reached out to the inspector general and said, something's gone wrong here. The inspector general decided that this was of the utmost importance, that it was a credible concern. But because the inspector general technically works for the president, they went to the Justice Department and said, what should we do with this whistleblower complaint? And the Justice Department said, you should not release this whistleblower complaint. And so right now what we have is Congress saying, we need to see this report and we need to see it by Thursday. The director of national intelligence, the acting director of national intelligence will be coming to Congress on Thursday. I don't expect him to turn over the report. But to me, as we are learning more and more details of the story, the absolute minimum that must happen is Congress gains access to this whistleblower report because the alternative is the president of the United States admits to everyone that in a phone conversation with the leader of a foreign country, he encouraged him to investigate his rivals. And we're all supposed to take his word for it. And we're all supposed to take his word that it was a quote unquote perfect conversation and nothing corrupt or illegal happened during this conversation. And I hope to God that that is not acceptable, that the bare minimum we need here is for other people to lay eyes on this conversation and this whistleblower report is the bare minimum we can all agree on as Americans that has to happen next. I would like Congress to also receive transcripts of all those phone conversations. Mm -hmm. 
And I understand that those transcripts are not going to read like President Trump saying, hey, do you want this military aid? Then here's what I need Mm -hmm. you to do for me. That's not how it works. No. But that should not be the requirement either. I think the president sees the potential for corruption in Joe Biden's son being involved with a Ukrainian country because that is how the president operates. It reminds me Mm -hmm. of when the president was trying to smear Robert Mueller by talking about a fee at a golf club. You know, the president sees a problem there because he would make it a problem because that's the way he conducts business and always has. And to me, we're getting to this place. I find myself doing these weird and wholly unacceptable calculations. How far does the president have to go in just blatantly Mm -hmm. asking a foreign country for assistance with elections to have committed an impeachable offense? How far does the president have to go in just being cool with a country helping? How many American women have to accuse the president of sexual assault before that matters? I mean, at what point is all of this just not okay? And I'll tell you, I think that I have been wrong on the impeachment question because I really have been in support of Speaker Pelosi's philosophy that the American Mm -hmm. people need to be behind impeachment in order for it to be a productive and still traumatic exercise for the country. But honestly, I just think I've been wrong about that. And I think that Mm -hmm. leadership right now in this moment looks like standing up and saying enough, enough of this. If this is how a First term, historically unpopular, constantly under investigation, Donald Trump uses the power of his office. Can you imagine what a newly elected second term Donald Trump does with this office? So true. I had the exact same thought process about Speaker Pelosi and her decision making. You know, he made this phone call the day after Robert Mueller came to Congress. What does that tell us? What does that tell us? It tells us that he saw, well, I could do all this. And Robert Mueller came and we had the report and nothing happened. So what's to stop me from continuing this behavior? And when I think about Speaker Pelosi, who I have a great deal of respect for, and I understand her argument and I understand the political realities of impeachment. And at the same time, we complain about Mitch McConnell because he's waiting For the president to tell him what to do instead of taking his constitutionally mandated responsibility for his branch of the government and leading and passing legislation and putting it forward without worrying about the consequences in the other branch of the government without saying I'm going to, you know, we get mad at him because he basically says I'm not going to act until I know what's going to happen. But that's what Speaker Pelosi is doing as well. She's saying, I'm not we're not going to act until we know what's going to happen. But that sometimes is not leadership, because you know what the reality is? Humans are bad at telling the future. We're bad at it. We even if we think we know what's going to happen, there are a million different scenarios and a million different um, situations and inputs and forces at play that we just cannot anticipate. And so the idea that we would not move forward with impeachment when there are clearly impeachable offenses because we need to know exactly how it's going to play out is it's not leadership. And it's not even a a good way to make a decision because we're never going to know exactly how it's going to play out. We cannot anticipate everything. Even Nancy Pelosi, who, who I find to be very smart and very capable at her job. 
We just can't. And sometimes we just have to look at it and say, if this isn't impeachable, what does it mean for a second term Donald Trump? And if I was a Republican, if I was Lindsey Graham, I would say, well, if he can get away with this, how will this play if a Democrat gets into office that I don't like, that I think's corrupt? You know, play this out beyond the next six months. Dang, think about the long-term impact of these types of behaviors on the office, on Congress, on our country. It's just, it's maddening. And instead, Lindsey Graham is in fact calling for an investigation of the Bidens, which I would hope if I were Lindsey Graham means that everyone around me has a squeaky clean character, has Mm -hmm. no connections throughout the world. I mean, look, I get that this sounds bad when you talk about it with the Bidens. Most of the people who are in public service for years and years and years have connections throughout the world that would make us uncomfortable because we can't tell exactly what is above board, what influences someone's decision making and what doesn't. We make it really difficult to be in public life and to have anything going on around you that resembles money making, power climbing, Mm -hmm. success on an international stage. This is why, not to take too much of a tangent, but I really struggle with this idea of term limits for Supreme Court justices, because what job is it that we'd be comfortable with them doing after they have sat on the United States Supreme Court? You know, it's difficult. These are really hard questions. What can people's family members do when they are the vice president of the United States? It's tough. But none of that has anything to do with the fact that sitting president of the United States would, from the Oval Office, call up a foreign leader and say, I'd like you to investigate American citizens because it would help me. On what universe is that acceptable? I don't believe that Joe Biden did anything corrupt. I believe the people who say we've investigated this and nothing happened. And at the same time, I don't believe Joe Biden's son should have been serving on the board of a Ukrainian energy company. And if we want to make difficult political calculuses based on how best to take on Donald Trump in the 2020 race, let me say this as clearly as I can. Joe Biden doesn't have to be the nominee. If this is complicating, if this is going to play out as just one more, you're corrupt, I'm corrupt, you're corrupt, I'm corrupt, 2016, we have other options. now. The problem is exactly what you just articulated, which can anybody live up to the standard? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. It is really, really difficult. But we have other options is all I'm saying. I don't want this to be the narrative of the 2020 race. When I sat down to do the news brief this morning, I searched just Ukraine. It's the only word I put into Google to see what news sources came up. And it was already solidifying into basically two different universes. Fox News had Rudy Giuliani on the newest thing Rudy Giuliani had said about Joe Biden and his son in the Ukraine. And every other news source had Donald Trump confirming that he talked to the president of the Ukraine. So it's already happening. We can already see it solidified into this. You're corrupt. I'm corrupt. And I can't I can't not do it again. I cannot do it again. Well, and Rudy Giuliani is doing on this issue what he's done on every issue on which he's advised the president, talking out of both sides of his mouth. Mm -hmm. These these accusations are ridiculous. They're also totally true and not improper in any way. 
which is it, Rudy? You yeah. know, he canceled a scheduled trip. Rudy Giuliani canceled a scheduled trip to Ukraine once the public started to find out about the trip. So to me, if transparency around your actions leads you to cancel those actions, you have awareness that what you're doing yeah. is not OK. This is not okay. Take Joe Biden out of the picture and replace it with Beth Silvers or Sarah Stewart Holland or your Mm -hmm. name or the CEO of your company's name. If the president of the United States can make a phone call and ask a foreign adversary to investigate an American citizen who was the vice president of the United States immediately before him, he can do this to anybody. We do not have a a constitutional republic anymore if this is the standard. And I don't mean to be dramatic about this, but. I'm sorry. We we don't care about anything if we don't care enough about this for our lawmakers to take some political risk to address it on both sides of the aisle. Absolutely. Well, Rudy Giuliani was traveling to the Ukraine, but there's also lots of travel this week because the U.N. General Assembly is taking place in New York, which means that Donald Trump has a scheduled meeting with the president of Ukraine at the U.N. General Assembly this week which is only going to add to the energy surrounding the story, I can imagine. Well, here's the other thing he's doing this week at the General Assembly. The first order of business for the General Assembly is a climate action summit where the U.N. is saying to countries, I need you to come in here with ambitious plans to combat climate change. And President Trump is skipping that meeting and himself hosting a session on religious persecution, which I think is a perfect encapsulation of where we are mm-hmm. in America right now. Instead of mm-hmm. being concerned about massive international threats, this president picks the culture war every single time. So. I guarantee that this religious persecution narrative will drown out on conservative media channels the Ukraine issue. And if that's where we are, I just don't know how we get out of it. Because I feel like we go into this election with this whole segment of the American population that says, I care less about the very principles supporting this idea of representative government and more about whether somebody who's too liberal could get elected. Well, the Climate Action Summit, despite President Trump's absence, has gotten a lot of international media attention thanks to the climate strike on Friday, led by climate activist Greta Thunberg. I think that the energy surrounding The climate strikes was so hopeful, so encouraging um, to see adults, kids, but particularly the kids saying, like, we're not trying to make you feel better. This isn't an encouraging thing. What we're trying to do right now is tell you you have to do something and you have to do something now because we're terrified. And I think that the power of of a global strike, like what happened on Friday and what continues to happen, is that it shows that people care, that the media narrative is not always the entirety of the story. It doesn't allow the entire story about the Climate Action Summit to become President Trump or honestly any world leader. It stops being, oh, well, the people in the room where it happens and the people at the table and obsession with them and turns the perspective around to say, hey, we're not all waiting for you. You know, 
Greta is not waiting for somebody else to tell her what to do in the same way that Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi are, right? And I think there's real power in that, real power. And I think we have to see the power of that and to see the outcome of, you know, just the immediate outcome and the energy surrounding the Climate Action Summit and just lean into it and keep at it just like she is committed to doing. I think we have to keep at it. We have to keep saying just because you don't show up doesn't mean it's not important. And if you're not going to do something, then we'll find somebody who is. I sort of struggle with the conservative opposition to climate strikes. I, I get that, you know, there's a sensibility where you just don't appreciate that sort of protest. Although we, as we've talked about before, there aren't really forms of protest that are appreciated by everyone. But what I think is particularly curious about trying to make climate a cultural wedge is that advocating for policy that really gets to the heart of taking better care of the planet doesn't really give anybody anything Mm -hmm. exciting and shiny. And it doesn't have any payoff that we're really going to see in our lifetimes. When you're advocating for the kinds of changes that will actually move the needle, the needle will be moved generations down the road. Like we kind of are where we are for our lifetimes, as I understand it. It could get worse, but we're not going to see it materially get better. And so when people are expressing kind of like expressing frustration about climate protesters as though they are just what spoiled entitled millennials, there's not anything in it for us. There's not anything in it for us right now. It is a protective action, and it is an action that is protective of future generations. So I wish that we could get that narrative out of the water at least and start to talk about this in more realistic terms. Another major shift I think everyone will be paying attention to at the UN General Assembly is we seem to have some movement with regards to the Israeli election There was basically an impasse, almost a tie, between um, Benny Gatz, Blue and White Party, and Netanyahu's party. The Arab bloc called the Joint List has now said for the first time they will be forming a coalition and endorsing a prime minister, which they do do not usually do, with Benny Gatz in an effort to oust Netanyahu, which I think is a really positive development for Israel and also another illustration of the ways in which Donald Trump is a total failure at foreign policy, because not only does he lean on foreign leaders to interfere in our elections, he is more than happy to use his weight and interfere in the partisan politics of other countries like he did in Israel, which is now going to bite him so hard because he put all his chips on Netanyahu that looks like his reign is over. He's doing the same thing in Britain, I imagine, to the same terrible results. And it's like, I just hope everybody sees this and realizes that the idea that norm shredding and chaos is always a great idea, especially with foreign policy that thrives on stability, a global economy that thrives on stability, is not working for us or anyone else. I guess I just wonder how anyone feels comfortable, given everything you just articulated, with this president making decisions, for example, about what to do in relation to Iran following the Saudi oil field attack. 
How do you find a sense of trust and confidence that a president who immediately on Twitter said we are locked and loaded and ready to to take military action in response to the strike is doing that out of a sense that it furthers America's interest? How do you know that an administration contemplating additional cyber attacks on Iran is doing that from a position of America's interest? When you have this phone call made that is about Trump's personal interests, when you have the reporting out of yeah. Scotland about Trump's personal financial stake and our members of our military staying in his hotel, you know, mm-hmm. there are just too many threads at this point. Why would the president care so deeply about Israel's election? Why is that so much in America's interest that Netanyahu remain in that position? When, best I can tell, Netanyahu has made stability in the Middle East as a region incredibly problematic, incredibly difficult. So to me, if I'm a member of Congress and I'm looking at the bigger picture here, it is not just what's been done in the past. It is the the present inbox of decisions that we need a commander in chief to make right now that I think moves me to take dramatic action. Well, before we move on to talk about a domestic issue, I think we've covered the world of foreign policy Ooh. pretty robustly here, and we'll have more of that later this week. But before we do that, we always take a second to compliment something really positive we see happening in the world. Sarah, what's on your mind this week? Well, I don't know if this is something positive happening, but I do feel like it's a positive conversation in that it is fully transparent and fully authentic. So the Washington Post this weekend ran a story about the Trump takeover of the GOP. And this particular statistic stopped me in my tracks. Since Trump's inauguration, a Washington Post analysis shows that nearly 40 percent of the 241 Republicans who were in office in January 2017 are gone or leaving because of election losses, including retirements. And there was just some really honest conversations among the the GOP making these decisions, including Representative Paul Mitchell, who has chosen not to run again, and just basically said, like, it's awful. Like, I have to wake up and deal with Twitter when he saw all the racist comments with regards to Representative Elian Omar, Representative Mitchell is from Michigan, and just dealing with all that. And I just thought his authenticity and vulnerability and basically saying, like, it's childish bullshit and I don't want to deal with it anymore. And why am I making the sacrifices for my family? It was just it was it was some of the most honest reporting I've seen on this issue. And I think, you know, as much as it's easy to say, well, if you care, you should stay and fight. There is something to be complimented in somebody showing up that way and being honest and um, forthright about why they're leaving and what they see. You don't see that a lot, especially from uh, members of Congress. And I really appreciated it. I wanted to compliment county officials, commissioners, organizations in Nevada, Reno, Sparks, and Wahoo counties have come together to work on homelessness. And in the conversation about homelessness that's taking place there in Nevada, there is a recognition that past efforts have failed, that our approach to tackling homelessness and poverty and all of the problems surrounding it involve too many agencies and organizations trying to stay in their own lanes instead of looking holistically at how we lift people out of homelessness. There's just a really honest and I think innovative conversation going on. A nonprofit organization that works on these issues has has been engaged to help these counties think through what they're going to do from here. 
And I'm happy to see it. I'm including a link in the show notes if you'd like to read more about that. But it seems to me to be a really promising start to, on a local level, but combining lots of resources, um, doing something about what I think is a problem at the root of so much crime, so much other poverty, so many educational issues. Um, If we can get people in sustained housing, I believe it will have ripple effects that really change our communities in a positive way. So well done, officials there in Nevada. Next up, we are going to talk about the modern labor movement and where we see it heading and what we think is important in this conversation. We will be right back after this short message from our sponsor. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash pantsuit. 
Beth, I feel like we picked the best month to talk about the modern labor movement because there has been so much news about strikes, about firings because of unionization in around the country in different all different sectors of the labor movement. And so I've been thinking about our conversation a lot. I've been thinking about where the labor movement has gone and the sort of the gaps in my own understanding of the labor movement and the importance of certain events in our history, and then constantly thinking about what it's going to look like next. Me too. As we immersed ourselves in that research, I kept coming back to how I think I have believed for my lifetime, to put it in really simple terms, that you kind of have to be like, unions, thumbs up or thumbs down. You have to think they are amazing or terrible. And the history is so much more complicated than that. As we talked about on Friday, unions have accomplished so many things that are just fundamental to the way that we work today, to workplace safety, to making sure that we do things other than work in our lives, to make sure that people are fairly compensated. And unions have also been corrupt and plagued with racism and sexism. And so I think what our research really helped me better understand, and this sounds so simplistic, but it's that unionization is not good or bad. It is a tool that is important to bring to bear sometimes. And also, it is not the only tool by which we change our economic systems to be better for employees. And that has kind of taken me to this big picture context where I think about with deregulation with laws that have made union organization harder, with globalization, with a decrease in antitrust enforcement, I think we have just swung the pendulum so far to one side that something has to give. And I'm not sure exactly what the role of unions is in finding a a better interplay between government and the private sector, but I am sure that it has a role to play in that equation. I think my changing perspective on unions is both at the way high up 30,000 feet level and then also on the ground grassroots level. On the 30,000 feet high level, the way, way up high perspective, what I kept thinking about is at the end of the day, almost all of us participate in our capitalistic economy by selling our labor. The statistics are 82% of the employable population are in non-supervisory positions. And so if that is the case, then to me, there always will be a role for collective action. There will always be a role for unions because There has to be a space for those of us who sell our labor, but who are not supervisory positions, who are not in charge of setting prices, of making those decisions, of setting wages, to advocate for ourselves. You know, if we're going to continue with this sort of capitalistic market, which I'm assuming we all are, I don't see any other, I don't see, you know, communism making a comeback anytime soon. And so... If that's the case, then we have to be able to advocate for ourselves because what we see from that really high level is when we don't um, and when the government is not um, on the side of the worker and advocating for those 
those changes as well, you see ballooning income inequality. You see stagnate stagnant wages. I mean, the 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 wage numbers with regards to unions, they're just hard to argue with. And I think for most of my life, I understood like I knew people in unions made better money. And I think what we're seeing now from the data is everybody makes better money inside and outside of the union when there's a strong, strong union presence in the country because you have that voice at the table for everyone. And so, you know, I think you especially see this in other countries. I mean, Sweden's unionization rate is 82 percent. And they have the, those social safety nets and that the health care and the child care and all these things that we talk about needing in the United States. You know, so I think the the overall role of of that collective action of having um, a voice at the table for the for those of us who sell our labor is so important. And then I think what I really what really crystallized for me is down at the very bottom level, like just on the ground thinking through unions is that word. It's carrying too much. Right. It's what do we even mean when we say unions? I think that we have this vision of, you know, Ford factories when the reality of unions and labor in 2019 is so much bigger and so much more complex. And I I, th- I think for a long time I thought, well, you know, we have this changing economy and unions only present this one way to advocate for the workers. And we're trying to force our new economy through this antiquated framework of labor unions. And through the research of this episode, I, I finally realized, like, no, that's not that's not true. Unions have met all kinds of different things over the course of history. And the idea that we have to force everything through the role of, you know, the Ford factory union is just not accurate. Right. And, I, you know, you see it in the early 1900s when we were talking about the Knights of Labor and the more radical societal collective actions versus the more trade union focused model. And we because of the power of those unions, because of the regulation, we really leaned into this sort of enterprise-based unions. We really leaned into the, you have to organize at your particular factory. I heard the head of the SEIU, who's amazing, and we'll put the link in the show notes, on the weeds. And she was just talking about, like, we have to let go of that. That doesn't work. And what you see in union is a more sector-based unionization. We're going to unionize all the fast food workers in the country because the high density is how you get, especially among lower low skilled workers, is how you get that impact. And so, you know, if we're talking about unionizing a couple thousand factory workers at a Ford auto plant in the early 1900s, changed the course, um, changed the economic futures of millions of Americans, what would happen if we unionized millions of fast food workers? What would happen if we unionized hundreds of thousands of home health care workers and daycare workers? What would happen if we unionized retail workers? I mean, I just think if we were if we just unionized Walmart workers, if we see that we have the we have density, we have people working in very similarly related sectors where they can have a voice at the table and that would affect everybody. That would affect all of us. I don't think we'd see that wage stagnation. We wouldn't see income inequality because all of a sudden in our new economy, those of us participate in that economy in ways that, you know, would have been 
you know, un- inconceivable in the early 1900s. Although, fun fact, I mean, care workers weren't inconceivable and they were excluded because it was women's work. But whatever. You know, I just think that that could really be revolutionary and we could see both at a high up level that impact across the board. But then just down on the ground, it would really change people's lives. This is where I think there is an evolution called for. And I don't know exactly what this looks like. And I think it has a policy aspect. I think the way we regulate unions needs to be more flexible. Again, I don't I don't have the policy proposal for that. But when you talk about fast food workers, for example, I listened to that interview as well. It is unconscionable that there's such a high burn mm-hmm. rate among fast food workers. Mm-hmm. There are so many different pressures around problems like that. Some of them having to do with the risk of automation and many of them having to do with the franchise model itself, because Mm. most of our fast food workers aren't working for corporate entities. They're working for franchises. Often the franchise owners are aligned with their workers concerns, Mm -hmm. but there are pressures from that corporate parent that constrain their abilities to be responsive to their workforces. And so That's why I think unions have a role, but it's probably a very different role than in the Ford era. And it has to be a role within a suite of other issues. We talked about this a little bit um, in our live show at Midway University about Lyft and Uber and how you have a workforce there where I'm sure some collective action among all drivers could lead to really good innovation on behalf of those drivers. There are also a multitude of concerns because you have some people who are trying to make a living driving and some people who are doing it for extra cash and want to work only a few hours here and there. And so I don't know what this looks like rolling into the future. I think it probably doesn't look like the AFL-CIO and sort of the big bureaucratic, which I don't mean in an insulting way, but just these kind of big organizations that persist over time to organize around policy and worker rights. I think it probably means something a little bit more localized to particular issues, whether that's by sector, as you were just talking about, Sarah, or particular concerns. And some of those concerns will be political, right? I mean, we see that um, surrounding the companies that supply beds and and furniture to facilities at the border where workers are saying together that's unacceptable to us in the country in the company that we work for. And so I just think this is going to be a fascinating thing to watch. From a policy perspective, I think what's most important is to find a way to give the flexibility around collective action that it needs to sort of shift and be relevant in the current economy. I agree with you that the changing roles of unions is going to be essential. One of the most interesting things I heard, though, in that conversation, and I hope it is reflective in other many of the other big unions, is the idea that Janice and this idea that we can't require you to pay dues means we're going to really focus on a membership model. Instead of saying, we're, you're going to pay our dues and you're going to trust us that we are um, – doing what's best for you, which I can understand why that upsets people. And look, let's not let's not confuse it. The dues, a lot of the dues were going to political contribution to Democrats, which is why people went after that aspect of union regulation. But I loved when she talked about, hey, we they've they've lost a thousand members, but they've gained like 
two for everyone they've lost because they thought, okay, well, we really have to listen to our members, engage our members. And so in the face of something you think would would shrink a union like the SEIU, a decision that says you can't require people to pay dues anymore, they've grown their membership. I love that that the leadership of that union said, we're not going to just roll over in the face of this of this legal defeat. We're going to change our strategy. We're going to look at the things that didn't serve us because I do think there's still a role for those big unions. You know, I think just because we're shifting and we're changing and we're going to have new unions and unions that look different, I still think the role of the SIU and the AFL-CIO, you know, this weekend was my 20th high school reunion. And it is hard to ignore that particularly the men and a couple of the women who graduated from my high school but did not attend college are union members, the ones that are doing the best, the ones who are engaged in their community, who were able to build a good, solid middle-class life, are in unions. I talked to two of them, one of my friends who's on the leadership of the AFL-CIO and another who's in a, a local union. And particularly my friend, Clint, was talking about, he said, you know, I wasn't ready for school. I knew I wouldn't. I knew I was going to party. So I joined the union. I've built this great life. And he was talking about his son. And he's like, you know, my son is where now where I am. He's already where I am now at 10. Like, I can't get him out of the books. And he's like, that's where I'm now. I can't learn enough. I'm so interested in history. And I just thought listening to him and listening to sort of the life he's built and how passionate he is about his union, I thought, man, that should still be available to people. Like, I would, I still want to see those unions grow and succeed. I hate that they have lost membership. I hate that this path, this really great path to a middle-class life has been cut off for so many people. So I hope, you know, we diversify the labor movement in the same way you would diversify a portfolio, right? And I think so much of that is, like you said, like it's going to have to be um, regulatory changes so that we can, you know, you like innovation. Innovation in union and labor movement is just as powerful to say, well, let's look at the lessons of the past. Let's see what um, what we can build on in unions like the AFL-CIO and SEIU. And let's see where new unions can grow, a different form of membership, because it's not going to be the same structure in every sector. It's not going to serve every sector to have a big national union like the AFL-CIO, but it will serve some. And just allowing people to organize, because I think you know, the the recent even stories over the weekend about the fall and trust for our institutions um, is because people don't feel empowered. And I think the most the they feel lost inside these institutions, they don't feel like their voices are heard. And I think absolutely the most positive part of this doing this research and looking at this is is looking about looking at how it changes when people feel heard and not in because my guy won and I'm pissed off and at least my guy who's ready to tear it down won. But in heard and like I I raised my voice. I said, what I see on the ground in my job is wrong and I want it changed. And that is so encouraging. We need more of that in America. We need more of people engaged with their institutions, making their voices heard, participating in the process, not just through voting or running for office, which is hugely important. But through that connection that you, you know, you talked about in our newsletter, that we are connected and it does matter how much the guy who, you know, built your house gets paid. And it does matter 
how much the person that cares for your child every day gets paid. That matters. And, you know, we're all in this because this brutal sort of circular process where I can't support you because I'm making less and I need I can't pay more for the T-shirt <laughs> or I can't pay a cent more in childcare because it's already pushing me to the brink. So you need to make less so I can pay less because I make less. Like, is that working for us? Because I don't think it is. And I think we're all recognizing that. I mean, you see it in the approval of labor unions, which is like half century highs. Republican, independents, Democrats, they're all becoming substantially more pro-union. I mean, when Missouri rejects a right to work legislation, something's going on. Um, And I'm encouraged by it. I really am. I think it's good that unions are growing again. And I think it reflects a need. And I'm glad that they're there to fill that need. And that's what I would say as I think about all those other levers I talked about, uh, antitrust and deregulation generally. It's not that I want to go all the way to sort of the Elizabeth Warren worldview. That is not where I am at all. It is to say, I think that in service of competition and capitalism, we have gone so far in the direction of no government involvement that we've kind of eliminated competition too. Why do we Mm -hmm. need all fast food workers to be able to organize together? Because we have so few companies actually operating those fast food franchise models that the conditions are pretty well the same everywhere. They're not in a talent war, right? The difference between a job at one and the other is very small. Well, that's a problem. We, you know, we need to bring more levers back to it being challenging to attract good workers, especially good workers in those fields where it's hard physical work. Not only physical work, but just dealing with the general public who tends to disrespect those jobs. You know, I worked as a lawyer and I found selling my time so incredibly depressing. The billable hour was such a struggle for me. And when I think about that and how ridiculous that sounds, as I consider selling not only my hour for the meager hourly wage that I would make in a fast food restaurant, but also my body, my skin that gets burned, the way people look at me and talk to me in society. I mean, it's ridiculous. And so I just think we need a whole slate of tools. And I'm glad that unions are rising as one of those. And then on kind of the bigger picture perspective that you were just talking about, Sarah, I mean, yes, this has a cost. You know, sometimes union labor is much more expensive. Sometimes it is much less efficient. We do have automated solutions to many of the problems that unions representing service workers present, and that is probably not best for us, even though it is cheapest. And that's a really hard cultural conversation that we need to have. I wanted to recommend this um, Instagram page is just really blowing my mind. I don't know if you've ever looked, Sarah, at decolonizing therapy. It's Dr. Mm-hmm. Jennifer Mullen. And she talks all the time about how the the mental health issues that many of us have and that we think of as personalized to us are really just symptoms of being in a society, I'm going to use my word here, that has just lost its way. I think she would talk more about systemic oppression and intergenerational trauma, and she has expertise to do that. I'm just going to say, like, we've lost our minds. I said in so many meetings last week that sounded something like this. Here's this really wonderful thing we want to offer people, but everybody is too busy to receive it. How can we give them 
the little tiny bit of it that might be able to capture their attention in a way and at a time when it might capture their attention. And over the weekend, I thought, wow, I'm having all these discussions about how people are too busy for things that are important to them and that matter and would make their lives better. And nowhere is the conversation, how do we make people be less busy? It is just how do we reach them, accepting as a given that we're all going to be stretched to our absolute maximum every day. So when Dr. Mullen posts things like exhausted, think about that as capitalism fatigue. Lonely, think about that as white individualism. I mean, I get it. And I think that that doesn't mean we need to become a socialist or communist nation But it does mean to me that our version of capitalism needs to find some kind of moral compass again. And I think that's what this resurgence of collective action around labor represents. People just saying, enough, let's find some kind of moral center to this structure again. I don't believe for a second that the people at Kickstarter think that America needs to fundamentally shift its economic model. I think they're just saying, hey, There's got to be a little room here for human beings in that process. Can I ask you a question? What do you mean when you say you're not on board with the Elizabeth Warren worldview? Because I don't hear a lot of space between what we're saying and I don't feel a lot of space between where I'm at and where she's at. So what are you what do you feel like she's articulating or do you see that in the the progressive left? I feel with the progressive left, like when you have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And I think that what I'm saying is much more about how we culturally think about money and what we need in our lives. I mean, you and I have put together a lifestyle for ourselves that is in some ways the American dream, right? But our flexibility in that lifestyle comes from our prioritization of time with our families over going and earning more money, for example, right? That is bucking huge cultural trends. How many times a week does somebody tell you or me that we're really brave? The risks that we've taken here are really brave. The way we've organized this all is really brave. Well, it shouldn't be like to say, here are the things that matter to me. I'm going to organize my life around those things. And it's going to be hard and I'm going to have less money because of it. I personally have much less money now than I did three years ago, but that is okay. To me, that is something deeper than can be fixed by legislative policy. And I recognize that I have a bunch of privilege that makes those choices available to me, and they're not available to everyone. And I do believe there's a policy component in supporting people to enable them to make those choices. But when I listen to, I mean, you, Senator Warren, but it's not just her, right? When I listen to her talk, I think, is there an aspect of life? that you, I I don't want you to have a plan for everything. That's where I come down. Like, I don't want a plan for everything, especially from a president, but I don't want federal policy hitting every single issue that matters to us. I, I think it is so much more important for us in our communities and in our states and across the country to take some private action. I mean, that's why I think unions are important because that is private action influencing public results. And I would rather support that private action than come behind with all this policy. Part of the reasons unions declined, as we talked about Friday, is that you started to have legislation that supplanted the need for those unions. Some of that legislation is awesome and important and she should endure. And some of it 
kind of brought an awkward, big, one-size-fits-all solution to problems in ways that just created more problems. And so I feel like there is a balance to be had here. And for me, she just she and others on the progressive left take that balance way to the other side of where I am. That's interesting. I feel like in her speech at Washington uh, Square Park in New York City, and she talked about the Triangle Shirt Waste Factory, which we probably should have articulated in our history. There's so much to get to. When she talks about stuff like that, what I hear her articulating is, let's let the government do what it's good at. And when you look through the history of labor, some of the huge turning points um, with the Flint, Michigan sit-in um, d- during the New Deal is when the government stood up and said, or even with Kennedy in the public sector unionization, is when the government said, OK, we're going to support the workers. Or even if it was a forced hand, like during World War I, where they had to support the workers because of external factors due to the war. I mean, when you see the government play a role here with the labor movement, which make no mistake about it, collective action is not just about calling on the companies to make changes. It is often calling on the government to make changes. The government not to bring troops <laughs> to end strikes, um, the government not to regulate the unions out of existence. And so, I mean, you see the drop off in union participation because of the role in government on the other side. And, you know, all I hear her articulating is not the government is the source of every solution, but we have been the problem and we do have a role to play. And let me articulate how I think that role should change because, and I think we need that. I don't think that you know, collective action on the part of the teachers in 2018. I mean, all of that was weighing on policymakers. They weren't protesting at, uh, especially public sector employees. I mean, if we're talking about them striking against their employees, their employers is the go- their employer is the government, and we have to see that. I think the the role of the government cannot be underestimated. Policymakers who believe in unions, who believe in collective action, who see the importance of the workers and them having a voice at the table of bringing those parties together in a real and sustainable way is massively important. It's essential. And that's all I hear her articulating. I don't hear her articulating regulation will solve every problem that the worker has or will ever have. I hear her articulating corporations have an outsized role in, in our government, and that affects unions, that affects climate change, that affects health care. And I have a plan to decrease that role and to to swing that pendulum the other way. Because I don't think, you know, somebody that believes in collective action, as much as I hear her articulating, thinks that it's, you know, the government's going to step in and fix everything. Although I, I definitely see how sort of articulating plan after plan. But I think that, you know, at the same time, you cannot underestimate the role of government in here. When you see these turning points in the in the modern labor movement, in the, you know, early or late 19th century labor movement, you see the pendulum swing, you see the weight on the scales in favor of the worker when the federal government or local governments got involved. I'm having a much more open-minded conversation with you about the role of government here than just about anyone who's ever voted for a Republican would have. Mm, So it is not that I am telling you that I don't think the government has a role. I hear everything that you just said. I'm telling you that I think government is less good 
at many things than Elizabeth Warren and the progressive left think it's good at. And I'm telling you that, yes, I see that the New Deal did some wonderful things for our society. I also see that it has saddled our society for a long time with bills we can't pay right now. And we need to fundamentally rethink how we approach those programs in order to save them for people who've relied on them before we create lots of new programs that we really don't have the capacity to handle, even if we do the wealth tax that she has articulated. And so, again, I'm, I'm really trying to meet you somewhere here, and I get it. It's just that it goes farther on that spectrum than I'm ready to go. I think it's just so hard as I look back at that history and I think about the New Deals and I think about these big, you know, issues with pensions, with defined pensions. I mean, do I think that we over promised? I don't know. I really struggle with that. I'd struggle with did we over promise or were we right with the promises? And then when it came to the delivery and making the hard choices, to deliver. And I don't mean because I mean, I guess what I mean is who's the we we're talking about, right? When it came to the delivery, I think it was there. But we got sold the I mean, hell, I don't know if you could even argue it was the the neoliberal argument that, you know, the the increased in quality life through all these cheap goods would be worth the sacrifices that we made with quality of life with regards to pensions and health care and all these things. I guess my I guess I just struggle and this is a worldview thing too, right? Are we talking about the shifting winds of time, um, the shifting changes in technology that nobody can really control? Or do we believe that at every step in the process there were controls? And that the people in power and the people with wealth put their hands on the scales, right? I don't really know the answer to that. And I struggle with that. And honestly, I think depending on the scenario, maybe my my answer would change. It's not that, you know, technologies don't come around and we want to innovate and we want to pioneer and shift I just think so often as I look back at the innovation of industrialization, as I look at the innovation of companies like Amazon, you know, we decide that the innovation is good before we think through the the cost on sort of the people at the bottom, right? Because they're not at the, the tables of power. They're not the ones um, articulate, you know, they they have more than enough capacity to articulate their needs in the face of societal, cultural, technological needs, right? They're at the table saying, well, this is how it's going to work for us, and this is how it will affect us, and we don't want this bad outcome. We want this good outcome. And without a labor movement, without a powerful labor movement, there's nobody at the table saying, okay, but what's the cost of that to everybody else? Or especially if you don't have the government saying, what is the cost of this to everybody else? What's the cost of your rapid delivery, Amazon? What's the cost of your social media innovation, Facebook? How does that play out for somebody who's never going to get to sit at this table? You know, that's what you need. And I, I mean, look, I mean, I think that the there's not one answer to that question. Diversification and representation in the halls of power can look like a lot of things. It can look like elected officials. It can look like union members. It can look like, you know, nonprofits, all kinds of sectors. But 
I think so often what we see is as history changes, whether we think it's outside forces or inside forces, it's the people with the power who decide who's going to bear the brunt of the cost. And I don't think it's it's just hard to, you know, and I don't think you're arguing this, but I think it's hard not to see that when there was increased power with the unions, at least there was somebody at the table, like even in the 60s, I was reading the study that even in the 60s, when it's not like unions were some picture of racial equality, they weren't. But the reality statistically is that black members in the union closed the racial pay gap much more quickly than people outside the union. So, I mean, stuff like that is just it's difficult to ignore. And I just think until we, you know, it's like every institution, we don't have to figure out how to make it perfect before we decide it has an important role to play. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze. And its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. 
comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. I mean, it's it's just, it's not the only role, you know? And and I think the trouble to just kind of close the loop on the New Deal idea that you're talking about is not that anyone had poor intentions or even that the execution was poor. It's that we make these policy decisions at moments in time with without the ability to see into the future clearly every other iteration of what it means to be a worker that's going to exist and every other iteration of where our government's dollars are going to go. And can you criticize all kinds of policy and corruption for getting us from there to here? Of course you can. But those aren't the only things. When I roll forward into the future just a little bit, if I go to sort of the outer limits of my imagination, you know, what will automation do to this conversation that we're having today? I have no idea. What would a war with Iran do to this conversation that we're having today? I don't know, but I know it would impact it hugely. And so that's why I just think it is you have to have multi-layered solutions to these problems and multi-layered solutions that have enough flexibility to continue to evolve. And I just think that federal policy lacks that capacity, which is why we have some of the problems that we have today. It's so hard when you look back, because I do think there was parts, you know, at, at, at moments in history post-New Deal when difficult decisions need to be made to meet the promise of those programs, both decision makers in the government and corporate decision makers were not willing to do the right and the hard thing. Right. I don't I mean, I think that happened. I think that that's a failure of leadership. And honestly, do I think there's a way to escape that ever? No. Sometimes you're just, it's hard to do the right thing. <laughs> it's hard to be a moment in leadership. You know, that's why we call it profiles and courage, because you have to look out and say, well, this will come at my expense or we're going to have to raise taxes or we're going to have to um, cut profits or or not pay out as much in dividends or all these different things. And you just I mean, that leadership is hard to come by. I mean, I think that's the long and short of it. Do I think we are are better equipped, hopefully, as we move our way through the 21st century, because at least we have a a wider pool of human beings to look to for that sort of hard, difficult leadership, because we're not leaning totally and completely on white men. Not that they're bad at it, but like, you know, there's only so many of them, which means proportionally, there's only going to be so many of them willing to do the, the right hard thing. So hopefully, as we open up leadership to more and more people, we'll find more and more people ready and willing to make the sacrifices and do the hard things. But that means we all have to do that, too. We all have to stop buying the $3 T-shirt. And I pick on T-shirts a lot, but it's such a good, easy example. Um, But there are lots of things we have to do. I mean, there are different definitions of what the right hard thing is. And that's another point in favor of diversification of leadership, because we can only see through specific lenses as mm-hmm. human beings. We're limited. We're constrained in our perspective. And that's fine. But we need to recognize it and account for it. And that's true whether you're talking about corporate leadership or union leadership or government leadership. And that's why I think all of those factors have to be at the table, because anytime you have people wrapped in structures, especially structures 
structures that involve positions of power. I mean, you see this in churches, right? In nonprofits mm-hmm. everywhere. There is going to be some corruption. There is going to be some abuse of power. And you have to have checks on that. And that's all I'm saying. Like we need a we are out of balance in what those checks are right now. And we need to find a greater balance. And, you know, part of what I think 2020 is going to be about if it's about policy. And that seems to be a conversation happening solely within the Democratic Party is what's that correct balance. Outside of the Democratic Party, I think 2020 is just a referendum on Donald Trump. Well, I hope that this all these collective actions that we're seeing both in labor and in, you know, with regards to the government, be it in Puerto Rico and Hong Kong, I hope that we all see that we have a role to play. I hope that the modern labor movement looks a lot better than, you know, the 10.7 percent unionization rate in the United States. I'd love to see that number grow. I think we all do better when that number grows. So I hope you guys learned a lot about the modern labor movement. We'll continue to have this conversation. We have some interviews on the subject that we can't wait to share. And let us know what you're thinking about that, if you've seen the effects of collective action in your life. And we're going to move on next to what's on our mind outside politics. Beth, what's on your mind outside politics? Jane has been bringing home all kinds of wonderful tips from social emotional learning at school, which I, by the way, just think is more important than math. I'm going to be honest with you. I wish we had had social emotional learning when I was in school. This week, this past week, she came home talking about the zones of regulation. She did not know they were called that. I had to do some Google searching to find it. But she explained it to me this way, that we're all on a color at any given moment. Okay, so blue is like you're feeling maybe sad or a little bit tired and sluggish. And green is where you're feeling happy and focused and ready to learn. She uses that all the time. I'm ready to learn on green. And then yellow is when you're feeling silly or anxious. She said, if your body can't be still, you're on yellow. And then red is when you're just out of control, like angry, not able to regulate your own behavior. And so Jane has just started tossing around all the time, like, I'm feeling a little yellow right now. Mm -hmm, It is mm -hmm. so incredibly helpful. And as I've started thinking about this, I see it everywhere. And I've realized this time of year, I don't know many adults who are on green. I feel Mm -hmm, like most mm -hmm. adults are blue or yellow this time of year because school has started. Everything is crazy busy. We're deep in kids' extracurricular activities. Workplaces are really busy this time of year for the most part. And you're staring down the holidays, so there's no relief in sight. You just look at the calendar, and it gets more and more compressed as the year goes on. And it's just really helpful for me to be able to say things. Last night, I was fixing dinner, and my patience was exhausted. Like I had hit my weekend limit. It was time for everybody to go back to school. And last night at dinner, I was getting really short with Jane and Ellen. And then I looked at them and said, you know what, girls, mommy's on blue right now. I'm just Mm -hmm. blue. And I'm going to try to get to green for your bedtime. But I want to let you know, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just on blue. And Ellen looked at me and she goes, mommy, I am on blue too. And Jane said, I think I'm still pretty green, but I feel myself working my way to blue. It's just an incredibly (laughs) valuable tool, and I'm so grateful for it. I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to learn more about the zones of regulation. I love that. I think that's so great. Being able to articulate it can sometimes move you out of a zone. Well, that's right. And having that common language, because, of course, we're. I could have said I'm really tired, but that meant something different than coming to her in her words that she's thinking about her own emotions to say this is where I am. So it's just, it's awesome. I'm all about the colors right now. 
Well, I am thinking about my reunion that I mentioned a little bit in the main show notes. Um, I had some trepidation about the 20th reunion, not because I don't I mind aging, because let me say definitively, I do not. Um, I had way too many experiences in my K through 12 where we lost classmates. I'm grateful to be here um, and recognize that many people um, are not with us. But I just had a lot of sort of trepidations about it. And I had the most lovely evening. We danced our butts off to 90s music. We reconnected. I think everybody is getting, you know, as we get, we're all probably 37, 38, 39, and we're just getting close to 40. You could see everybody mellowing and everybody just, we don't have a lot to prove. We're just here to enjoy each other and check in and support each other. And it was such a beautiful evening. I'm so glad I went. Um, I hope that we start doing it every five years or more often than that than every 10, because it was just so wonderful to see these people and see them growing older and in happy marriages or proud of their kids and watching their kids thrive. I just it was such a lovely, fun, fun evening. So it was it was great. Good for you. My 20 year reunion was this weekend as well. I was here in Northern Kentucky, not there, but I looked at a few pictures and hope everybody had a really good time. And I totally agree with you. I like this age that we're entering in. I like this phase of life. I feel so much more settled than I did even a year ago, to be honest with you. I feel like 40, it's just going to be living our best lives. I'm really excited Mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. it. I'm reading a book right now called There Are No Grownups, A Midlife Coming of Age Story by Pamela Druckerman. And it is so good. And it's all about getting into your 40s and and just that, how we all feel like more fully ourselves and how wonderful it is. We also, before we close out the show, wanted to recognize Podcast Appreciation Month. First, thank you for appreciating our podcast. And also wanted to give a shout out to all our fellow independent podcasters and all the amazing work they're doing. Knox and Jamie at the podcast and Bogle at What Should I Read Next? Tish at The Simple Show. Emily Freeman at The Next Right Thing. The Mom Hour. We know so many people out there in this space making amazing content, and we are so happy to be working alongside them. Yep. Emily and Kathleen at Being Boss do great work. Mm -hmm. I think about their work all the time. There are so many great shows out there. It is hard to do this when mass media companies are churning out podcasts faster than y'all can listen to them. And so the fact that you share your time with us, even though you could be listening to podcasts that have 60 people producing them instead of the four of us, uh, we are really, really grateful. And we're also really grateful for for all the other wonderful content that's being made um, by small but mighty teams out there. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsu Politics. We'll be back in your ears tomorrow at The Nuance Life. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsu Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. 
Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 